Well, this morning, we're going to talk about um, David. <coughs> Excuse me. And I wish that I had a couple hours, because all that I want to talk about, there's so much, but obviously we can't spend two hours here. I've got about 30 minutes or so. And so let me quickly give you a synopsis of the story. Um, I'm looking at the section of scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 20, all the way through till 26. And obviously we cannot do seven chapters in 30 minutes as far as reading it in in-depth. But the basic, is, basic story is this. After David slew Goliath, Saul brought David into his uh, court to be part of the royal court. At one point in the scriptures it says that David was the captain of the bodyguard of the king. So it literally means that David was right up there in, in all of the, the, the sessions around the round table, if you will. Um, whenever there's an executive session, David was part of that because he was the captain of the bodyguard of the king. David also had this incredibly close bond with the son of the king named Jonathan. David and Jonathan were like brothers. And it comes some point where David says, I'm hearing that your dad is angry with me and wants to kill me, and I don't understand why. I haven't done anything. I've been faithful to him. I don't know why this, is, this animosity is raised up. And Jonathan's like, oh, David, you're, you're wrong. I don't know who told you that. There's no way. My dad wouldn't do that. He, he knows how loyal you are. He's seen what you've done for him. And David says, well, look, look can, can we just test something here? There's a, there's a new moon festival that's about to start. And it's a week long of, of me, of, of, uh, I mean, a few days long of feasting. Would you excuse me from that? And when your father asked, just tell him that I had to go home for some business at home. And, and just then see how he responds. And Jonathan was like, okay, great. So he did. The very first night, <clears throat> David doesn't show up. His place is empty. And it says in the scriptures that Saul was aware of David's absence, but he didn't say anything. He thought, well, maybe he was ceremonially unclean and he couldn't make it. But the next night, Saul notices he's absent again. And he says something out loud about it. And Jonathan then says, well, David asked me for permission and he wanted to go home and do some business. And so I gave him permission. And Saul loses it. Has a meltdown and begins screaming at his son Jonathan. You son of a vile woman! Don't you understand? This man is trying to take your throne away from you! And he starts screaming at him and screaming at him. And Jonathan's eyes are open to the fact that Saul has this anger, this hatred, this rage that's deep inside of him against David. So David and Jonathan uh, had concocted a, a plan that David would be out in this field, Jonathan would bring a little boy with some arrows, and he would shoot the arrows, and if he said to the little boy, hey, you're looking too far, the arrows are closer to me, come on this way, that would be a signal to David that everything was fine, it was safe, and you could come home. And if he said, no, the arrow's not there, don't you think it's beyond you, it's beyond you? And that would mean that there is danger, and don't come back. Well, they go out, they do the arrow thing, the little boy finally takes all the stuff and leaves and heads back home, and Jonathan's left standing in the field, and David comes out of this hiding place, and it says they hug and they embrace, and a covenant is made between David and Jonathan that David will never, when he comes to power, he will not harm the family of Jonathan. Because normal practice would be that when you now become king, you kill all of the descendants of the previous king. 
there's no chance that you would lose your throne through uh, an, up, an uprising. So David and Jonathan have this time of parting where there's this love bond between them and a covenant between them. And then David is now an outcast. He has no place. He can't go any place that's safe because King Saul is after him. But David is a very prominent man. Everyone knows David. And the very first place he goes is to a place called Nob, where there's a priest named Ahimelech. And he goes to Nob and he says, I'm on a mission for the king and I'm doing everything that I, that I can. It's all, it's all quiet. It's all surreptitious. I'm not allowed to even talk about it. It was so fast. His orders came so quickly that I didn't even have time to go back to my house to get supplies. Do you have anything for me? I need bread. I need a weapon. Do you have anything? He goes, well, the only bread I've got is the bread that was on the table of show place. And as long as you're sexually pure at this point in your life, you can have that. He said, and the only other weapon I've got is Goliath's weapon, sword, the, the guy that you killed. It's wrapped up here right behind the, t- the, 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 the curtain. And he said, I'll take it. So he takes the sword. He takes the bread. And it says very carefully that there's a guy named Doeg the Edomite who happens to be there at the, at the area and he sees David and Ahimelech. And that plays in very importantly later on in this story. Then David, taking the sword and the food with him, and he's on the road trying to figure out where in the world is he going to go, the very first thing he does is he goes out of the area of Israel into the land of his enemies to one of the major cities of the Philistines. And it says that when he gets there, the king says... Why are you bringing this guy to my court? Isn't this the guy that they say Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands? Why are you bringing this man to my court? He's an enemy of the Philippines. Well, David gets wind that the king is aware of who he is and is upset that he's there. And all of a sudden, David, it says, begins literally taking his fingernails and scratching the door frames and letting drool come down his beard, acting like he's a crazy man. And so then the king, the Philistine king, says, Get this guy out of my court! What are you doing? For you? Do I not have enough crazy people in our, own, in our own kingdom? Get him out of here. And so David is able to escape from the danger of being in that Philistine thing. Well, the next thing it says he does is that he goes to, verse chapter 22, it says <coughs> he goes to a place, um, Adullam and Mitzpah. And what he does there is he grabs up his mom and his dad and he takes them down to a place in Moab and he says to the king of Moab, would you take care of my parents for me, please? There's something going on, and I'm worried about them. I'm worried about their safety. I'm worried about their protection. Would you please bring my mom and dad into your care? And the king of Moab says, of course. And so he takes David's mom and dad into his protection. Then David goes back up, and he goes to a place called Keilah. And he's there in this town because the Philistines are attacking Keilah. And he asks the Lord, he asks the, the, the priest, he says, should I go and help Keilah? I've got this group of guys with me that have come around me. Should I go and help and, or, 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 or what? And the, and the Lord through the priest says, yes, you should go. And so he goes to Keilah. And while he's there, um, he gets word that Saul has heard that he's there. And Saul is coming. And Saul will literally tear down the city of Keilah in order to get at David. And David goes to the priest and he said, If I stay here, are the inhabitants of this city going to turn me over to Saul? And the Lord answered, Yes. And he's like, oh, I've got to get out of here. And he's just despondent. And there's this one part that I wanted us to look at um, in this. It's verse 20, chapter, 3, chapter 23, verses 15 to 18. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Zim, Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. 
Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. There's this point where David is literally reaching despondency. And who but his best friend, his brother, comes and gives him courage and encouragement and says, listen, you know the truth. You know that God has ordained that this is the way it's going to end up. My dad even knows it, regardless of what he's saying and what he's doing. And you need to be encouraged, my brother. You will be king. I'm going to be second to you. Don't, don't focus on the now. Don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on the promise that you have. Well, later on in this same chapter, it says that David is literally going around the mountain and Saul is on his heels. I mean, it's like, it's like if this was a movie, this would be the time it's like, back and forth going, oh my word, they're getting closer, they're getting closer, they're getting closer, and David can't get away. And all of a sudden, somebody rides up out of the middle of nowhere on a horse and comes up to the king and says, oh king, come quickly, the Philistines are attacking the Israelites. And the king goes, now? Uh, uh, and leaves. And David is rescued. Isn't, isn't that a little coincidental? I would say that was more of a God thing. But anyway, um, then after this, in chapter 24, David and his friends are down in the area called En Gedi, which is down near the Dead Sea. It's this beautiful oasis. There are caves all over there. And it says <coughs> Saul knows that he's there, thinks he's got him trapped. So they're heading down there. And Saul all of a sudden turns to his leaders and says, listen, i got to go to the bathroom. Excuse me, I'll be right back. And he goes into a cave. And he's squatting down in this cave, going to the bathroom. And guess who's in the cave? David and his 400 people. They're in the back. And these guys are watching the silhouette of the king squatting down, doing his business. And they go, David, look what God has done. He's brought your enemy into your hands. Get him now. It'll be all over with. Go. And David goes up, takes his knife, reaches up and takes Saul's robe, and cuts a part of it off, and then scurries back. And it says that David is pricked in his heart for what he just did. And he says, I shouldn't have done that. Saul is the Lord's anointed. It is not my place. It is not my place to lay a hand against him. And he's, he's hard, I mean, his heart is, is hurt. And then Saul finishes his business and gets up and starts walking out of, this, out of the thing and after a few moments, Saul is down the hill, rejoining his people. And David comes to the mouth of the cave. He says, King Saul! King Saul! Why are you searching for a dog like me? Don't you understand? I've been loyal to you. I have never done anything that would try to harm you in any way. I honor you. Look, I have a piece of your robe in my hand. God delivered you into my hand right now. But I couldn't do it because you're the Lord's anointed. Look! And it says that Saul, tears in his eyes, went, oh, David, my son. 
And then a few minutes later, he wants to kill him again. Because in chapter 26, they're again attack, uh, surrounding him with the, en- with the enemy. Saul, yeah, I agree. I think he is crazy. Saul is literally laying asleep in the camp. It says that there's a jug of water and a spear right there by his shoulder. And his bodyguard is around him. And then the, all of the rest of the people are sleeping. And David says, hey. And this guy goes with him, and they crawl into the camp. And literally, David grabs up the jug and the spear that's right by Saul's head while he's sleeping. And they crawl back out of the camp. They get up onto the ridge of the hill, and he calls down, Hey, dummies! You ought to be killed, every single one of you! And they're all jumping up, what's going on? You didn't even protect your king, dummies! Want to set somebody up? I've got his jug and his spear right here. And at that point, Saul's like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's still sick. He's still messed up. He still hates David. But this is pretty much the last that we see of him chasing and pursuing David. So all through all of this, David does what is honorable. But look in chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. 26, 9 through 11. David said to Abishai, who was the man next to him and that that crawled down into the camp, Don't destroy him, King Saul. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So, what I see in this is a man who is facing really tough times. He, is, he has no safety anywhere. It doesn't matter where he goes. He's always under threat of being turned over to his enemy. His life is literally on the line. People have rallied around him. But he's now trying to lead this group of four to six hundred men. He's got thirty guys around him that are the close allies, and they've got this semblance of an army started. But none of them have a home. None of them have a place of safety, and they're literally having to go all over the place trying to hide from the king who's trying to kill them. And everyone else doesn't want to get involved, or if they do get involved, they want to stay on the good side of the king. So they're willing to turn him over. But through all of this, through all of this, I don't see David doing anything wrong. We know through the story that later on, after he becomes king, there's the Bathsheba thing. We heard about that last week. But during this part of David's life, when he's facing the worst that he's ever faced, he can stand with his head held high. He can know that if he were to face God at that moment, he would be told, well done good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But the thing I struggle with when I read through these chapters is did he really trust God? I mean, if you look at it, when he was in the court, when he was in the court of King Saul and found out that his life was in danger, what, what, what did he do? He ran away. He didn't stand and face it. Trusting that the Lord would take care of him. I mean, isn't God sovereign? 
Isn't God the one who ordains all of the things of our world? And if God chooses that I'm going to be killed, so be it. And if God chooses that I be raised up to be a king, so be it. And if God chooses that I still stay a shepherd in the field, so be it. So why did he run? I suggest he ran because his life was in danger and it was the most prudent thing he could do. But was it the correct and righteous thing? The other question that I I wrestled with was um, he protected himself and his family. He went to the priest and he got food and he got a sword and he took his family down to the king of Moab and and made sure that they were safe. He feigned insanity to get out of another bad situation. Instead of just getting on his face before God and praying, Lord, protect me, keep me safe, get me out of this situation, he took matters into his own hands and began drooling all over himself. And the thought that I had, as I've already asked, is was he right in doing these things? I mean, where is his trust? Well, I could always throw at you that old adage, God helps those who help themselves. I mean, that's in what, Hezekiah or Habakkuk or somewhere like that. It's not in the Bible. It's, 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 a, it's a wives' tale. There's no biblical reference that talks about God helping those who help themselves. And it also doesn't say God will not ever give us something that we can't handle. Did you know that? That's another lie from the pit of hell. God says, when you are tempted, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear, and he will always provide you with a way out. That's the promise. It's not you'll never get something you can't handle. Because if that were the case, why would you have to depend on him? But in this situation, wouldn't it have been the righteous thing to just let go and let God be in charge? I mean, we are holiness people, for for heaven's sakes. When I joined the Church of the Nazarene, I was taught you get saved because you ask Jesus into your life, you repent of your sins, you confess your sins, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins, and we are now redeemed by Jesus. But then a point comes in our life where we have to become sanctified, and the way that happens is you consecrate everything of your life to God. I can remember the old ladies at the church going to the altar, standing up there, saying, I gave God the unknown bundle at the day of my sanctification. How many of you have ever heard the term, the unknown bundle? Some of you? Many of you don't know what I'm talking about. The unknown bundle. I don't know what's coming down the the pike, God, but whatever it is, my answer is now yes, regardless of what the circumstances are, regardless of what I feel, regardless of anything, my answer is yes. This is the unknown bundle. I'm covenanting with you in an unforeseen future because I trust that you see the future and you know what's best. So I make you Lord of my life. Isn't that what it means for God to be Lord? That we no longer take things into our own hands, but we trust him? I don't know. Does it? As I was mulling over this, the Lord brought to my mind this verse. Ephesians 6, 13. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13, but it's Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And as I was chewing on all of this, and the Lord brought that section of scripture to mind, he very clearly said to me, what are those instructions, Bob? You, as a Christian, are charged by me, your heavenly father, your protector, your provider, to put on the armor of God. It didn't say stand by while I put it on you. It then said... Let me read a little bit further. You take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay. And then verse 13. When the day of evil comes, after you have done everything, Stand. And what I saw there was that in this relationship with our Lord, we can depend on Him and trust Him for anything. Anything that's in our path. Whatever giant is in our path, taunting us, tormenting us, proclaiming danger to us, We can trust that our Heavenly Father will not leave us nor forsake us. He will provide for us. He will take care of us. But we have a part in it as well. In the same way that we see in David's life. Him taking action, always making sure to do what is right and honorable before God and man. But taking action. And when we reach the end of our resources... Stand. Not run away and cower in fear. Stand. Lord, I have done everything that you have given me to do. I have fulfilled all that is on my plate. Everything you've presented before me, I have done. And so I now stand here confident that you will then take care of the giant in my life. The reality is, David in his walk, had to actually throw the rock at Goliath's head. Now, God, I believe, empowered the rock to sink in and kill Goliath. But David still had to go so far as to throw in the rock. He couldn't just stand there with the rocks in his pocket and say, Okay, God, I'm here and I'm prepared. Make these rocks miraculously fly at Goliath and chase him away. And then the last thing I want us to go to leave with is this. Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. This is the, the Exodus, this is the one that, that Emily talked about this morning, about God delivering the uh, Israelites through the crossing of the Red Sea. 
And it says in verse 13 and 14, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And that's the word that God would have for you this morning. Once you have done everything that you have had placed in your hands, and you've been faithful and done that which is righteous and God-honoring and God-fulfilling and advancing of the kingdom of God, if there still isn't an answer, if there still isn't a final, it's okay, and the giant is still standing there before you, then you just declare the name of the Lord and you stand in confidence, knowing He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will bring about perfect result. That's the hope that we have.